Good morning. Good morning to those joining us online. Honored uh, that we could connect together in this way for this moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in Colossians, the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Is where we're going to be for like the foreseeable future, yeah. Uh, so we're actually going to be here for another seven or so um, weeks. But we're working through um, this just glorious book that God has given us, the book of um, Colossians. Last week, uh, we ended our, our message with just highlighting uh, verse 6. I actually think it's where we should begin. And so verse uh, 6, it says, which has come to you. We were working through the breath, the, the scope, the depth, the various dynamics of the good news. The good news regarding the person, the claims, and the work of Christ, the gospel. And regarding this good news, the truth, it says this, it has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And, and what we said was this, God is working in ways we can't imagine, in places we can't imagine producing more life. God is at work. This is the hope Every single Christian holds on to. God is working. Even if we can't see it, even if we don't feel it, even if we can't necessarily sense it, God is working and he is working in ways that are beautiful, that are true, that are noble, that are good. We preach it to ourselves. We sing it. We hold on to it. God is at work. And when we understand or examine the scope of that work outside us, we come to the conclusion that God is bringing about renewal, all things new. This is the end game. This is what we long for. This is what we look towards, that there will come a day where we will stand on the other side of eternity and we will look back with hindsight and we will say, all things new. Every wrong righted, whether in this life or the life to come, every broken thing mended and made whole, whether in this life or the life to come, all things new. Examining this unimaginable work around us, and we get that phrase, renewal. Now, when we dive into this like, great work, but we examine it within us, like, how is God working within us, in, in the lives of people? What the scriptures, like, conclude is that the, the summation of that work within us can be called discipleship. Discipleship. God's ongoing work, the ongoing work of God to restore, to mature, and to transform the lives of his people through the life of Christ. Discipleship. We want to examine the work of God in us. We come to that conclusion, discipleship, the ongoing work of God to restore, to mature, and to transform the lives of his people through the life of Christ. Emphasis on the ongoing. Because what that means practically for all of us is we are going to have regular moments that I call me again moments. 
where it's like, here I am again. I thought we were past this. I was wrong. And it's easy under the weight of those meet again moments to just be crushed and just get frustrated and be fatigued. And you need to hear from me that you are not alone in your me again moments. And you need to hear from God, Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. So where you are now, if God is not a liar, is not where you're going to be tomorrow. It's not where you're going to be three months from now. It's not where you're going to be three years from now. Where you are now isn't where you're going to be if God is actually working in you. And that's comforting. It's comforting for me. I had to preach that to myself first service. I had to preach that to myself yesterday, you know? And what this message is, is to lock in on the work inside us, discipleship. And by locking in on this work, honestly, to restore some of the nobility that is lost when we think about discipleship. Because, you know, it becomes one of those things that we kind of put in the Christian Rolodex of ideas and terms, and we just kind of throw it over there, only bringing it out when we want to impress people or sound smart. But it's a game changer. It is the work of God inside us. So how do we restore the nobility of God's work inside us and also reduce the complexity? That's the aim. Restoring the nobility and reducing the complexity of joining God in the work. To do that, we're going to look at specifically verse 7 and the dynamics that, I mean, they're just the dynamics of the text. And then we'll close. And so the flow of our time is going to be restoring the nobility, reducing the complexity, and then some requests that I would make of us here and us online. Cool? Crazy that God would invite us to join him in this work. He's kind. Now, we're going to read it straight through just so we can get pulled back in the text. Chip, I know you already read it, but I, you know, I, love, I love this passage. It just does work for me. So we're going to read it straight through, and then we'll take it um, bit by bit. Verse 3 reads like this. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope is alive. Hope is active. It moves us to action. Hope laid up in heaven is showing up in your earthly life. You're serving people. You're loving them. Hope laid up in heaven, but it's not stored over there so it doesn't impact your life. It is transforming you because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, Evangelion, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved faith fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. This is such a subversive passage. Just that phrase. We're going to get there. It undermines some of the most dangerous dynamics at work in our world right now. 
and some of the most dangerous dynamics at work in our modern expression of Christianity. Minister of Christ on your behalf. And as made known to us, your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray. We're still praying for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance. That we would endure, we would keep going, even when it's difficult. That though we may stumble, we don't stay down. It's the nature of hope at work in our lives. He's praying for it, endure. And patience with joy. There's a gladness in your heart, in our hearts, and our souls. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So much here, man. Would we just allow this to do work in us? No amount of charisma, no amount of being cover, screaming, passion, precision, throwing out Greek terms. Nothing is going to bring this text to bear on us but the Spirit of God making it alive. Of what we just read. The goodness of God at work in life. Dynamics here, dynamics here that build out the nobility. Let's restore it. Right here, reads like this. Verse 7, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. That just that, just saying that just phrase, a minister of Christ. It builds out the nobility because it shows us that the nobility of the work is attached not just to the work itself. It's a glorious, noble work, renewal, all things new, that's good. Restoration, that's a good thing. Maturity, great thing. Transformation, you can have a formal life, things can be different. That's a good thing. So it's not just attached to the work itself, but it's attached to the one who calls us into it, of Christ. The work of ministry is service. All right, that, that's, that's ministry. Ministry equals service all throughout the scriptures, to pour out for the sake of another, to give so somebody else's benefit, service. Minister, now often, you know, you're like, oh yeah, that's what Bucci does. That's what he does. He gets up there, he preaches, yeah, yeah. That's what people do when they travel, yeah, they minister. And it's like this secret club that only a few people belong to. And your entryway into this club is a doctorate or some master's level education. And then you administer. That's not what we see in the scriptures. That a minister is a servant. Somebody who has been empowered to serve. Ministry equals service. Minister equals servant. We who call ourselves Christians are in ministry 
and we're called ministers. It's not, that's not just me, not a few people. It's all of us, more on that later. But there's a nobility there that we're meant to see, not just with the work, but with the one who calls you Christ. Been thinking about this a lot lately. Relationships die when there's a shift from beautiful to useful. Imagine being in a relationship with somebody and you found them beautiful. You were attracted to them, not just physically, but for who they were. And then over time, that faded. And now it's useful. I'm still with you because I like my tax breaks. Make sense? It's different. We know who Jesus is. We still with him because, yeah, I like that tax break that's coming when I die. I call it heaven. Or is there something else there to encounter him, to see him, the one who stretches out his arms freely for the sake of people? It's love. The nobility is not just the work itself. It's the one who calls us into that Christ himself would say, let's do work together. There's more. The nobility is also seen in the fact that we're part of something that's bigger than us, but not beyond us. So verse six again, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, i.e. it's bigger than Miami. Christianity is bigger than any culture, any country, it is global and cosmic in its scope. And it's bearing fruit even when we can't see it. We started the sermon off like that. It was in North Carolina this week. North Carolina is different than Miami. Amen? Praise God. Africa. Praise you. Jesus. Jesus' name. Now, one of the refreshing things about being in North Carolina this week was hanging with some other, like, pastors and some of my friends out there and we were telling stories about how we were surviving the apocalypse and how we were looking to flourish in this pandemic. And man, just hearing their stories was like, man, it was a reminder of this verse. Man, God, you are working in ways we cannot see. It's so much bigger than us. One friend, he was chatting about how one of his members is from Kenya. And at first I was like, are you bringing that up? Because I'm, you know, but Kenya and Nigeria, not the same, but we're just going to move to North Carolina. And so as he brought that up, like, he was like, man, his, his friend was getting the gospel, the good news of the person, the claims and the work of Christ. It was transforming him. He was involved in community. And something happened. He was like, man, you know what? I want to go back to Kenya, and I want to start a church there. Will you help? Bless you. And so now, this church in North Carolina... North Carolina is saying God has work to be done in Kenya. We want to be a part of it. Guys, this is so much bigger than us. What a shame that we on this side of the globe believe that we've cornered the market on Christianity. That's arrogant and wicked if we're honest. Almost said, let me move on before I get in trouble. 
But it's not just that it's bigger than us because it goes beyond our geographical spaces and territories or our cultural dynamics. It's bigger than us because it's bigger than us individually. We are part of something bigger than us, the body of Christ. This is the end of Colossians chapter 1. So Paul, as he's talking about him being a minister, he's emphasizing, yo, the work or the expression of my ministry, my service, is preaching to make known the excellencies of God so that we can respond accordingly, preaching, so that we can be moved towards greater restoration, greater maturity, and greater transformation, preaching. That's what he's after. But then he goes on to say, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. But then you get to verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Notice that. I have a particular part to play in this whole entire process of maturity, but we have a part to play as well. We're going to get to that in a few weeks, but it's bigger than us. You know, again, I get to sit and think sometimes, and, you know, it's got, and I've said it before, but it just hit me, <laughs> hit me as I was reading through this text. One of the most fascinating and frustrating things about navigating the pandemic is it, it just reminds us that this is a group project. This is a group project, y'all. And we're failing at it. Let's not be cute. <laughs> but it's a group project, Yes. And I have a love-hate relationship with group projects. Some of you have a love-hate relationship with group projects. Some of you engaged online have a love-hate relationship with group projects. And you love it or hate it, depending on the people you're in the group with. Because you, you can spot them out. You're going to be that person that doesn't pull their own way. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yes? Discipleship is a group project. It's a group project that the individual and collective maturity rests on all of us. It's a group project. The nobility is that we're part of something that's bigger than us, but it's not beyond us. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Subversive. Subversive. Epaphras doesn't go back home and there's no church in Colossae. Do you know what that means quite practically for you and me? There are people right now, I am not exaggerating, I am not embellishing, there are people right now, and the only way they're going to experience this good work, this noble work of restoration and maturity and transformation is through your life. That's it. That right now there's people waiting on you to be courageous and obedient. It's subversive. It's bigger than us, but it's not beyond us. God has bound this work of the gospel flourishing to the obedience of his people. He's wise. The dynamics of nobility continue as we just look and examine Epaphras all the more. It's already said that he's our fellow servant. This is verse 7. So your life is bent outward towards others. It doesn't curve inward towards yourself. Selfishness and service are at odds with each other. 
and you are emptied of your selfishness every single time that you model something beautiful, you're going for someone else's benefit, Epaphras. There's more. Epaphras, this is Colossians 4.12. Paul likes to talk about him. He was talking about him in Colossians. He was talking about him in Philemon. But Colossians 4.12, it reads like this. Epaphras, one who is of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis, one who is of you. This hits me. Epaphras was from Colossae. However, he did not get introduced to the good news of the gospel in Colossae. Now, some people say, man, he, it was on the Macedonia call. Some people are like, man, when he was actually in prison with Rome. But what everybody agrees upon is that Epaphras didn't learn about Jesus in Colossae. So think about this. Think about this. He's living his life. God intersects his life and says, I have more for you than you could ever imagine. It's relationship with me. Come on. Epaphras believes it, is restored, is growing, transformed forevermore. And do you know what he does? He says, wait a second. I've just been changed. There's people in my life who need this. I have cousins. I have friends. I have an entire community back home that I need to go to and make sure that they are able to understand the grace of God that I have just encountered, that freaks me out. Because often what we see is God calls us to familiar places and familiar relationships. And familiar places and familiar relationships are often very frightening because they've seen you. They've known you. And so there's that tinge in your soul. Are they going to judge me? This is going to make it awkward. But he overcame all of that, and some of you need to go back home. God is calling you back to familiar places and familiar relationships to be an agent, a minister of the gospel. I love it. There's more to him, though. Struggling on your behalf in his prayers faithfulness. We don't just see his faithfulness, we see his humility. Because humility and prayer go hand in hand. Arrogant people don't pray. And if there's prayerlessness in my life, that is revealing that there's arrogance in my heart. Because I can go without God, I'm good. I'll figure this thing out. By my strength, by my effort, by my wisdom and ingenuity, that is a type of arrogance. So you have this humble man, there's more here, he's hardworking. I'm just going to grind for you. You are worth the work. So I'm going to grind this thing out. There's more here. Philemon on Epaphras says this. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings to you. Paul uses that language, fellow prisoner, often, and it doesn't always refer to circumstances that one might be experiencing, i.e., they're in jail. Sometimes, oftentimes, it refers to the condition of their heart, i.e., they're devoted. What he's highlighting here is you're my fellow prisoner. You are so devoted to this work. You are so devoted to other people being benefited by Christ that it doesn't matter what circumstances you find yourself in. 
prison or not, you're about that life. You're devoted. Back to verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. Everything else was direct descriptions. This is an indirect dynamic. Learned it implies taught it. That Epaphras taught. Now, it's worth pausing there because we project our perspectives of learning into the scriptures. So often, if we're honest, we believe learning is merely or primarily acquiring new information. Right? So we know it's true because think about how we measure learning. Scantrons, SATs, FCAT. You know what I'm saying? Like some of y'all traumatized because you know what your score was. Praise God for you, though. You are not your score, all right? Market. Just regurgitate information. When we search the scriptures, what we see is learning isn't primarily or merely the acquiring of information. It is the formation of an identity. You're becoming something. That shapes the way we understand teaching. That teaching isn't merely transferring content. It's modeling a life. We know this to be true because he lived life with them. Paul picks up on this in Philippians 4.9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. That's the full gamut of the teaching, learning experience. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is Jesus, right? End of his life getting ready to be crucified, has a meal with his family, closest friends. They're arguing over who's going to betray him. They're arguing over who's the greatest among them. And in the midst of their bickering, Jesus gets up, wraps his waist with a towel, and starts washing feet, the very job they were supposed to do, and serves them. And then after doing this, he says, oh, yeah, by the way, go and do likewise. Follow the example I've given you. Notice what he didn't do. He didn't go, man, here's the three points to become a better servant. Point one, man, you got to decenter yourself so you can be more humble. Point two, you got to empty yourself of selfishness so that you can consider other people. Point three, you need to do what others won't do. Be proactive with that. He didn't do none of that, although all of those are true. He said, watch what I did, now do it. Modeling intentionally. Now, he did have moments where it wasn't just modeling, but it was direct discourse. This is Jesus, Matthew 4. This is Jesus, Matthew 6. Teach us how to pray. Awesome, let's get it. Our Father in heaven. Start with adoration. What it means is the center was their learning and their growth. The environment was relationship. Matthew 4, 19. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Do we see that? you see those mechanics? An invitation into relationship, you're going to see some stuff up close, and your identity is going to be formed fisher of men. 
the nobility of the work is the simplicity of the work. It's not complicated. But we overcomplicate things that we're not confident in or are not really eager to do. This isn't complicated. There's another part here that's hitting me, and I want to say this, and I'm going to move on to reducing the complexity. Notice the description of Epaphras. Notice what's not present. Man, he was such a dope communicator. Man, when he was singing, ooh, Shekinah from the sky. Man, he was so strategic. The way that he put A, B to C to D, none of that. None of the external giftedness that we like to fix our eyes on. All that was said about him was character qualities. You're a genuine guy. You're a servant. You love people. You care. They matter to you. His greatest contribution to the work wasn't his giftedness. It was his life. This is why this matters. Because that subverts the toxic dynamics of our current forms of Christianity. Dynamics that say you are what you do, not who you are. Problematic. That's why everybody in Miami is often tired. Running around, just, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to do this, especially in the church. Your contribution is your life. And from there, everything else. It undermines how we think about the gospel advancing and ministry. Listen. I love preaching. God has called me to be a pastor full-time. That is my job. It can be taken away from me at any given moment, whether it's by my foolishness, and I do something ridiculous, and I disqualify myself, and our team steps in and is like, Muchi, you have shamed the name of Christ in a way that is sad, it breaks our heart, and because you're leading in a unique way, the consequences are unique as well. You need to sit down. I love pastoring. It could be gone. But I, listen to me, and others in my ilk, in my career field, we are not the carriers of Christianity. It goes beyond us. Epaphras, not Apostle Epaphras, just Epaphras, an everyday Christian who really believed the gospel and changed the world around him. The over-professionalizing of Christianity has led us to be in this weird space of spiritual anemia. And I've been very burdened because I think people are seeing that, but when I talk to people, again, in my elk, it's like they'll use that phrase, well, you know what? If you teach a man to fish, he'll fish for a life. And so the primary motivation is we want to equip you so that you can do the work for yourself. And there's some truth there. That's just not the primary motivation. If I do the work for you, that God is calling you to do. If I replace you, I rob you of joy. I steal something beautiful from your life. 
if I step in a place that God has reserved for you. Don't let me do that. I won't let me do that for you. I won't let you let me. Kevin Hart voice, right? There's something beautiful and joyous God is after. Simplicity. <laughs> Simplicity. Tracy, can you put that slide up? It should pop up in the Bible app, but it's also online in the notes. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, so walk in him. How do we receive Christ? Grace, faith. How do we walk in him? Grace, faith. Relying on who God is to get the work done. Empowered by him to go and change the world. But when we talk about world change, we have to start with our world. We change the world through ours. Change the world through yours. Your world, my world, consists of key dynamics. People, place, and passion. There's people in your world. God has put you a particular place, and he's put something inside you. There's a signature on your soul. It consists of time, talent, and treasure. We all have the same 24 hours, 167 a week. You are gifted. You are gifted. You are gifted. Do you hear me? You are gifted. Care what anybody else says. Don't compare your gifts to other people's gifts. You are gifted. And treasure, you have resources. And you're like, you haven't seen my bank account. Let me tell you. It doesn't matter how little you have or how much you have. You have because God is generous. We have resources. And this is just a visual and a simple tool to be more intentional with our time, talent, and treasure with the people God has placed in our lives, with where he's placed us, with the passions he's put inside of us. And to be more intentional, to pour our lives, we ask questions. Next slide, please. When we start thinking about the people and the place and the passion, there's really three questions that we ask. Now, all of this is going to be made accessible to you guys. But you should still write it down. Write it down. Question one, who has God put in your life to connect with and care for? There are no accidental friends. Just God being gracious. Question two, where has God placed you in the season of your life to serve? This is Acts 17. No accidental circumstances, just opportunities to serve. What is breaking or energizing your heart and why? I had a great conversation with somebody yesterday. And as we were talking, dear sister of mine, you could just hear her heart for the vulnerable among us. She's just like she was thinking about certain situations and circumstances that have been happening in our world. And she was almost at tears. She was just like, we need to do something about it. And in the conversation, one of the most powerful moments was to say, yes, and do you know where we get the fuel to do something about it? The very heart of God. Every single one of our modern ethics of justice are rooted in God's heart. We don't naturally think about caring for the vulnerable. Ask a toddler. Look in the mirror. But God inserted this new ethic into humanity 
that the vulnerable among you matter because they matter to me, they have dignity. What is breaking or energizing your heart and why? Next slide. Then we look at our time, our talent, our treasure. And we start with our time and we say, well, okay. How can you be more intentional with your time for the benefit of others? This is Ephesians. This is the end of Colossians. This is Romans. Salvation is nearer than when we first began. We should walk wisely regarding our time. Second question. How can you be more intentional with your talent for the benefit of others? Your gifts are not just for you. Other people should be benefiting from your giftedness. Last question. How can you be more intentional with your treasure for the benefit of others? That we would resource other people's good. Some request. First request is that we would just approach this visual, this tool that declutters the complexity and reduces it prayerfully. And we would ask those questions and answer them. Take the next week, that's the request. Take the next week and ask yourself those questions and answer those questions prayerfully. Second request, share it with somebody. It could be the person that you filled in a blank. That could be an awkward conversation or a life-giving conversation. Hey, man, you know, my pastor, well, he's not my pastor, I just kind of show up, but this guy was preaching and, and, you know, he was talking about, like, we should be more intentional with our lives for people, and I just feel like you're not in my life by accident, and I want to know how I could care for you and how I could connect with you. I have some ideas of what it looks like to connect with you and care for you well, but what do you think? What would it look like from your eyes to connect with and care for you well? That could be an amazing conversation. Wouldn't that bless somebody? I know that can be frightening, but what I've seen is in the face of what's frightening, God delights in giving more grace. And so share it with somebody and push through the fear. Last request orients around the humbling, frustrating truth I think we're all familiar with. And it's that procrastination is the thief of greatness. Steals it. I'll get to it. And either... It doesn't get done, and when it does get done, it's not as great as it could have been. And so, yes, I want, I want us to take the next week and just thoughtfully engage with these questions, thoughtfully engage with these visuals. We're going to get it to you. If you're not locked in on our social, they'll be up there. But when we enter into a time of communion and we are reflecting and responding to what God has done and how God has pursued us in these ways, I want you to fill out one question. Just fill out one. And so whether it's a question around people, just fill it out. Whether it's a question around place, fill it out. Whether it's a question around passion, something is breaking or energizing your heart, and you're like, man, I sense it, fill it out. If it's something around time, fill it out. If it's something around talent, fill it out. And if it's something around treasure, fill it out. So that we don't leave here with excuses in our back pocket but we make every opportunity to press into this glorious work 
and experience good and joy as a result of it. The work is good, guys. It's good. I can't do it for you, but I can walk with you. No one can do it for you, but we can walk alongside each other. Let's pray. Father, God, forgive me for the ways that I've robbed our church of joy unintentionally. Father, forgive me of the ways that I've complicated the simple unintentionally. God, God, I just pray that you would forgive us for unintentional selfishness that just creeps up in our hearts. And would you remind us of your love and your care and your concern and your thoughtfulness and your pursuit and the joy that you have in your heart to restore and mature and transform lives through us. God, I am, I am eager and I anticipate what could be, what already is within our church and in our city. God, give us eyes to see the forest and the trees, that we would see the scope of what you're doing, but we would see it through individual lives, stories, people, faces. And would we take great pride in pouring out our lives for their sake? And will we find great joy in pouring out our lives for their sake? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.